The History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Sons of Africa, Kwabna Otabakuguano and Olauda Equiano. Good cop, bad cop. We all know this strategy from movies and television, where a suspect is alternately menaced and offered cups of coffee in an attempt to secure maximum cooperation. It might seem an uncomfortable analogy for explaining the strategies of black activists, given the history of police brutality and police killings that have disproportionately affected black people in general and black activists in particular. When Martin Luther King was working for civil rights in the southern United States, he met with a whole lot of bad cop and not much good cop. Yet it's an illuminating analogy nonetheless, as we can learn from Coretta Scott King, Martin's wife and in her own right a leading figure of the nonviolent civil rights movement. She told the story of a conversation between herself and the fiery black nationalist leader Malcolm X, who famously defended black people's right to violent resistance. Malcolm argued that he was being helpful to the Kings by publicly attacking Martin, saying, if the white people realize what the alternative is, perhaps they will be more willing to listen to Dr. King. For a similar contrast, we can look at two authors who were active nearly two centuries earlier, Olauda Equiano and Kwabna Otoba Kuguano, both of whom have been mentioned already in previous episodes. Kuguano's thoughts and sentiments on the evil and wicked traffic of the slavery and commerce of the human species was published in 1787. It burns with the fire of a Malcolm X in its excoriating attack on the slave trade and slavery in the West Indies, complete with repeated attempts to instill fear by warning of the danger of divine retribution, should the British people fail to end this ongoing abomination. Equiano produced something quite different, and arguably much less threatening. The interesting narrative of the life of Alauda Equiano, or Gustavus Vasa the African, published two years after Coguano's book in 1789, is an autobiography unlike anything that came before it in Africana tradition. Of course, it's not our first autobiographical text. We covered several in episode 32, particularly those of James Albert Ukausa Goranyausa and John Marant. But Equiano's text was much longer and more detailed than these, and importantly, written by himself. The title page announces this fact, thus separating Equiano's narrative from those written down edited and quite possibly shaped or reshaped in significant ways by a white amanuensis, credited with relating the black subject's words. Equiano is explicit about the political purpose of his writing. He dedicates the book to the members of the two houses of the British Parliament with these words, Permit me with the greatest deference and respect to lay at your feet the following genuine narrative, the chief design of which is to excite in your august assemblies a sense of compassion for the miseries which the slave trade has entailed on my unfortunate countrymen. So even the political target is somewhat more modest than the one at which Coguano aimed. Coguano's thoughts and sentiments attacks with equal vigor the practice of slavery in Britain's colonies as well as the slave trade itself, whereas Equiano mainly targets the latter in cooperation with efforts going on at that time in Parliament. 
Furthermore, there's a difference between fiery warnings of divine retribution and attempting to excite compassion through one man's tale of suffering and overcoming. Does this perhaps make Equiano the good cop to Caguano's bad cop? The analogy is made all the more interesting by the fact that, unlike Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, Caguano and Equiano were close friends and collaborators, sharing a common cause if not a common approach. This may also help explain why Equiano's book was so much more successful than Caguano's. It's hardly surprising to see readers preferring the good cop. Equiano's greater fame, and the more obvious impact and influence of his book, eventually put Caguano in his shadow. But as historians of philosophy, we're going to give Caguano pride of place, and not only for chronological reasons. The shadow of Equiano has been so long that Caguano's thoughts and sentiments, when remembered at all, has often been categorized as a slave narrative alongside Equiano's, but this is a mistake. True, Caguano takes a moment early on in the book to tell the story of his life, a passage that is so powerful and moving that we drew on it to introduce not only episode 29, but part two of this whole series of podcasts more generally. But this is a small part of the book as a whole, which would be more appropriately described not as a narrative at all, but rather a treatise of political thought with an autobiographical aside. It is, in fact, arguably the earliest book-length work of Africana philosophy in a European language. Nonetheless, let's not abandon narrative just yet, but instead take up the story of Caguano's life where we left it in episode 29. As we noted, he was brought as a slave at the age of 13 from what is now Ghana to the island of Grenada. He spent a little less than a year there before being brought to various other islands that he does not name. Toward the end of 1772, when he would have been 15, he was brought to England by the man who owned him, Alexander Campbell. This just so happened to be the year that the judge, Lord Mansfield, came to his landmark decision in the case of Somerset versus Stuart, which involved the question whether a slave brought to England could be sent back to the colonies against his will. Lord Mansfield held that this could not be done, a decision generally understood as a ban on slavery in England itself, whatever may be the case in its colonies. We lack details on Caguano's own emancipation upon arriving in England. We do know that he was baptized after being advised that doing so might help him avoid a forced return to the colonies, and he took the name John Stewart. We will continue to use the name Caguano, but it should be noted that in daily life, judging by the way he signed his own letters and how others have referred to him, he was generally known as John Stewart. We know little else about Caguano's life in the 1770s, apart from his successful efforts to gain literacy during this time. By 1784, he was working in the household of Richard and Maria Causeway, both of whom were artists. Here we have yet another reason to mention Thomas Jefferson, who was deeply in love with Maria Causeway and corresponded with her until Jefferson's death in 1826. Perhaps the only existing likeness of Caguano is a self-portrait by Richard Causeway from 1784. It shows the artist sitting with Maria while Caguano serves them grapes. The polite, obliging servant depicted here is hard to square with the enraged and disgusted tone found in his writing on slavery. That activist side of Caguano began with a visit he made in July of 1786 to see Granville Sharp, at that time the most prominent anti-slavery activist in Britain. Caguano and his friend William Green, who was another black Londoner, informed Sharp that a black man named Harry Demain had been tricked by his employer into getting on a ship bound for the West Indies where he would have been enslaved. A writ of habeas corpus was obtained, and Demain was saved just in the nick of time as the ship was about to depart. 
That same year, 1786, gives us Coguano's earliest known writing, a letter he sent to the Prince of Wales, urging him to endeavor to release the oppressed and put a stop to that iniquitous traffic of buying and selling men. Coguano published his thoughts and sentiments the following year, in July of 1787. At the end of that year, he was among the group who sent a letter of gratitude to Sharp, thanking him for his many efforts and accomplishments in the struggle against slavery. This letter was signed by Coguano and ten others, including Equiano, who collectively addressed themselves to Sharp as the Sons of Africa. This is generally counted as the first of a series of letters sent publicly or privately by this group, whose personnel varied but featured Coguano and Equiano as core members. The Sons of Africa have been treated by some historians as a pioneering black political organization. Others warned that it was, at best, a loose network that did little more than write congratulatory letters to leading white figures in the anti-slavery movement. For our purposes, the importance of the Sons of Africa is to frame the philosophical contributions of Coguano and Equiano, helping us see even more clearly the shared aims and collaborative spirit underlying their works. Even as he led the efforts of the black community, Coguano also took inspiration from anti-slavery texts by white authors. Thomas Clarkson was one of them. He eventually attained a stature in the abolitionist movement similar to that of Sharp. In 1786, he published his Cambridge dissertation, originally written in Latin, entitled An Essay on the Slavery and Commerce of the Human Species, particularly the African. It is no coincidence that Coguano echoes Clarkson in calling his book Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked Traffic of the Slavery and Commerce of the Human Species. That title marks it as a sort of sequel to Clarkson's treatise, written by an African who had first-hand experience of the slave trade and the slave colonies. Coguano even quotes and paraphrases Clarkson during one of his reflections on the divine retribution invited upon themselves by Europeans through the evil practice of slavery. Another admired precursor of Coguano's was James Ramsay, an Anglican priest who spent time in St. Kitts, witnessing and protesting against the brutality of slavery there. After returning to Britain, he wrote a book called An Essay on the Treatment and Conversion of African Slaves in the British Sugar Colonies, published in 1784. This eye-opening attack on colonial slavery provoked a response by a plantation owner named James Tobin, published anonymously under the title Cursory Remarks Upon the Reverend Mr. Ramsey's Essay on the Treatment and Conversion of African Slaves in the British Sugar Colonies. For all their other disagreements, authors of this time were united in their preference for a nice long title. Coguano's first order of business, after bringing to a close the autobiographical portion of his book, is to refute Tobin, or the cursory remarker, as he calls him. One of Tobin's strategies was to argue that West Indian slaves are better off than the poor in England, who must fend for themselves while slaves are provided for by their masters. In response, Coguano argues that we must distinguish between hardship and losing status as a human being. Even if some dogs would refuse crumbs that a person in dire poverty would be glad to eat, this does not mean the person would be willing to trade places with the dog. Here we can already see that Coguano is operating at the level of political philosophy as well as polemic. His point is that freedom has an absolute value that is incommensurable with material welfare. But let's grant for the sake of argument, says Coguano, that the situation of slaves is superior to that of the English poor. Would this justify slavery, as Tobin suggests? Why should it not instead spur us to fight against all suffering and oppression, whether in the form of poverty or slavery? 
If anything, Tobin's comparison leads us towards greater appreciation of the purpose of political community itself. Caguano writes, And this seems to be pointed out by the circumstances he describes, that it is the great duty and ought to be the highest ambition of all governors to order and establish such policy and in such a wise manner that everything should be so managed as to be conducive to the moral, temporal, and eternal welfare of every individual, from the lowest degree to the highest. And the consequence of this would be the harmony, happiness, and good prosperity of the whole community. Thoughts and Sentiments also has interesting things to say about the origins and value of skin color. Proponents of slavery like Tobin of course thought that black skin was enough to justify oppression. Could Guano resist this with a mix of religious and rational argumentation? He draws first on Paul's claim in Acts 17.26 that God has made all nations of one blood. The context as it happens is Paul's visit to Athens and his controversy with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. For Kuguano, this verse establishes that all people, whatever their color, share a common origin. In fact, it suggests that at one time we were all the same color. How is it then that we are now so diverse in complexion? Not by choice, obviously, so God himself must be the source of this variety. When we observe the globe, Kuguano claims, we may further notice a purposeful pattern in this variety. He writes, As the bodies of men are tempered with a different degree, to enable them to endure the respective climates of their habitations, so their colors vary in some degree in a regular gradation from the equator toward either of the poles. The implication is that diversity in color is actually a product of divine benevolence. He concludes that it may be reasonably as well as religiously inferred that he who placed them in their various situations hath extended equally his care and protection to all, and from thence that it becometh unlawful to counteract his benignity by reducing others of different complexions to undeserved bondage. So, the systematic subjugation of others who are different in color is not merely unjustified but also irrational. It perversely treats a sign of God's special concern for the flourishing of his creatures as a reason to interfere with and undermine that very flourishing. Understanding God and his divine plan is, more generally, a central theme in the book. Nowhere is it more thoughtfully and audaciously pursued than in what we may call Kuguano's emblem theory of divine communication. Apologists for slavery routinely made the point that bondage was practiced by the Israelites under the law of Moses. Kuguano contends that this was not slavery but vassalage, which requires the consent of the person kept in servitude. In truth, this is a very questionable interpretation of Old Testament labor practices, but Kuguano could shrug off that objection because his more important point is that the Old Testament is no model for social practices in the present. We are meant rather to understand it as metaphorically significant for our struggles as individuals to attain salvation. He follows this point to its logical conclusion by claiming that God may intend any natural phenomenon or historical event to teach us how we may be saved. He sees a sacred language operating in all the variety of things in nature, with the result that we should see all things as figures, types, and emblems, and other symbolical representations to bring forward, usher in, hold forth, and illustrate that most amazing transaction, namely our salvation and redemption through Jesus Christ. The whole world, we might say, is the ultimate talking book, and the story it tells is a Christian one. This is inspiring stuff, but it leads Koguano to a line of thought we're apt to find uncomfortable. 
He illustrates the emblem theory by referring to Jeremiah 13.23, which says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Sounds like just a simple analogy, but Kukuano's theory implies that the very purpose and function of the leopard's and black person's skin is, at least in part, to teach all humans that they cannot rid themselves of their sinful nature by their own efforts. Earlier, he proclaimed that dark skin is evidence of God's beneficence. Here it is, disturbingly, connected to the tenacious grip of sinfulness on our soul. Kuguano himself appears to recognize that he is in danger of self-contradiction, as he emphasizes the need to remember that the external blackness of the Ethiopians is as innocent and natural as spots in the leopards. No one blames the leopard for having spots, and similarly, black people should not be thought of as evil on account of their color. Still, it's hard not to feel like this application of the emblem theory brings evil uncomfortably close to blackness. Let's return from what Kuguano calls the sublime science of metaphysics to more straightforwardly moral and political matters. We saw Lemuel Haynes draw back from defending the right of the enslaved to resist violently. Kuguano was not so reticent. Just as Malcolm X would later speak of attaining black freedom by any means necessary, Kuguano claims in thoughts and sentiments that we have a duty to seek to escape enslavement. Thus, if there was no other way to deliver a man from slavery but by enslaving his master, it would be lawful for him to do so if he were able, for this would be doing justice to himself, and be justice as the law requires to chastise his master for enslaving him wrongfully. We shouldn't push the comparisons with Malcolm X too far, however. In an earlier passage, Kuguano sounds more like the non-violent king. Having just invoked the golden rule to say that slave owners ought to treat others as they wish to be treated, he cautions his enslaved brethren, But our divine Lord and Master Christ also teacheth men to forgive one another their trespasses, and that we are not to do evil because others do so, and to revenge injuries done unto us, wherefore it is better and more our duty to suffer ourselves to be lashed and cruelly treated than to take up the task of their barbarity. So, which is it? Bad cop or good cop? Actually, Kaguano is not being inconsistent. Kaguano tells slaves to avoid vengeful brutality, not any and all violence. He can still approve of violence so long as it is necessary for the sake of deliverance rather than revenge. But when Kaguano wants most to strike fear into the heart of those defending slavery, he concentrates on the threat from above. Nothing else, he says, can be expected for such violations of taking away the natural rights and liberties of men, but that those who are the doers of it will meet with some awful visitation of the righteous judgment of God, and in such a manner as it cannot be thought that his just vengeance for their iniquity will be the less tremendous because his judgments are long delayed. In fact, it is not only those who own or defend slaves who Kuguano wants to scare. He goes so far as to say that, while ever such a horrible business as the slavery and oppression of the Africans is carried on, there is not one man in all Great Britain and her colonies that knoweth anything of it can be innocent and safe, unless he speedily riseth up with abhorrence of it in his own judgment, and to avert evil declare himself against it, and all such notorious wickedness." Invoking the most fearsome bad cop of all, the one we know from the Old Testament, Kogoano exhorts all his countrymen to erupt in protest, lest they bring divine punishment down upon themselves. Sadly, we have no contemporary reviews of thoughts and sentiments 
to tell us how white readers reacted to this heavy indictment of all those who had not yet spoken out against slavery. By contrast, we have a number of reviews of Equiano's interesting narrative, including one by a figure of great importance in the history of feminist thought, Mary Wollstonecraft. She found its depiction of the slave trade and Equiano's quest for freedom compelling, but focus on Equiano's spiritual journey to the Christian faith uninteresting. The book's first chapter gives us a nice connection between this period of Africana philosophy and our earlier episodes on pre-colonial Africa. Equiano tells us that he was born in 1745 in Igbo land in what is now Nigeria, and he then launches into a detailed description of as many of the customs of his people as he can recall, covering political structure, law, marriage rights, music, dance, clothing, food, drink, architecture, commerce, agriculture, war, religion, measurement of time, hygiene, burial rites, and more. All this ethnographic detail conveys a sense of cultural pride. Indeed, Equiano justifies this digression as a product of the principle of love of one's country. Actually, there is some doubt as to whether Iboland really was his country. His modern biographer, Vincent Caretta, points to evidence that he may in fact have been born in South Carolina. But the ethnographic details of that opening chapter, such as transliterated Igbo words, remain credible. And if the claim of an African birthplace is in fact fictional license, that would all the more highlight Equiano's pride as a true son of Africa. This pride is expressed in another way when he compares Igbo customs with those of the ancient Hebrews, as recorded in the Bible. These similarities suggest to him that his people were directly descended from the Jewish people. Even today, a distinct minority among the Igbo take themselves to be descended from a lost tribe of Israel and practice Judaism. According to Equiano's account, he was 11 years old when he and his sister were abducted. He speaks in heartbreaking terms of being separated from her, then briefly reunited, before a second permanent separation. Eventually, he endured the horrible trip across the Atlantic and was brought via Barbados to Virginia, where he was purchased by a Mr. Campbell. Amazingly, this may be the same Alexander Campbell who later purchased Cuguano and then brought him to England. So Equiano and Cuguano, later activists and friends, may have both been enslaved by the same man in different places and at different times. Equiano's time with Campbell was brief. A lieutenant in the Royal Navy named Michael Henry Pascal bought him, initially planning to give him as a present to friends in England. During the trip to England, Pascal gave him the name Gustavus Vasa, after the first king of modern Sweden. Like his friend Cuguano, Equiano generally used this European name throughout his life, but chose to use his African name when publishing his book. Equiano accompanied Lieutenant Pascal on various voyages and saw action during the Seven Years' War against the French. As he gained in experience and education over the years, the teenage Equiano began to look forward to eventually gaining his freedom, but he was unexpectedly sold and brought to the Caribbean island of Montserrat. There he was purchased by a Quaker merchant, Robert King, who clearly did not follow the prohibition on involvement with slavery that we often associate with Quakers. But he did allow Equiano to purchase his own freedom after building up sufficient funds by working on ships. In 1766, he was emancipated. Once free, he kept to the sea, traveling all the way to Turkey, where he was surprised to see how the Greeks are in some measure kept under by the Turks, as the Negroes are in the West Indies by the white people. He also took part in a failed attempt to find the Northwest Passage to Asia through the Arctic Circle. When his ship got stuck in the ice, the ordeal focused Equiano's mind on his eternal salvation. 
Although at one point he found himself more attracted to Islam than Christianity, he had a transformative religious experience in 1774 that confirmed him as a Christian, specifically, like a number of other black writers of the time, a Calvinist Methodist. Next comes a rather shocking turn in the interesting narrative. Equiano chooses to accompany his friend, Dr. Charles Irving, to the Mosquito Coast of Central America in order to develop a sugar plantation. Equiano says that he even helped purchase slaves for the plantation. I chose them all my own countrymen. Carretta explains Equiano's decision by saying that he was convinced that his own experiences and observations as a slave enabled him to be a humane overseer of slaves, and that only later on would he recognize humane slavery as a contradiction in terms. But by this point in 1776, Equiano was already familiar with Granville Sharp. He had called on Sharp to help him in 1774, when a friend of his named John Annis was captured in order to be sent back to the Caribbean. Unfortunately, Annis was not saved. Once the 1780s came along, Equiano too turned to anti-slavery activism. At the end of his interesting narrative, Equiano traces his role as public abolitionist to an address of gratitude to the Quakers written by himself and others in 1785. He does not specify, but this is almost certainly an action by the Sons of Africa, including Coguano, that predates their letter to Sharp. Equiano was also the one who got Sharp involved with what is now known as the Zong Massacre. After 133 Africans were thrown off a slave ship to drown, a dispute resulted from the ship owner's attempt to collect insurance money for their loss. Sharp unsuccessfully tried to have the ship's crew charged with murder. Connection with Sharp also played a role in Equiano's involvement with the Sierra Leone project. This was a government-sponsored plan by Sharp and others to provide for the resettlement in West Africa of the so-called Black Poor of London, who included many loyalist veterans of the Revolutionary War in America, and even some people from India who had worked for the East India Company. Equiano was selected by the Committee for the Relief of the Black Poor to help oversee the project, but conflict with a colleague led to his dismissal. A letter from Equiano to Cucuano about the messy affair was published in the Public Advertiser. In Thoughts and Sentiments, published mere months after ships left England for Sierra Leone, Cucuano brought his characteristic insight to the matter. On the one hand, he deemed the plan for resettlement a more honorable way of colonization than any Christian nation have ever done before. On the other hand, he pointed out the fundamental flaw and hypocrisy of the British government seeking to establish a free colony not far from where it continued to support its forts and garrisons, to ensnare merchandise, and to carry others into captivity and slavery. The initial Sierra Leone colony failed, but five years later, a new infusion of black loyalists from Nova Scotia gave it new impetus. The revived colony has grown into the modern nation of Sierra Leone. Equiano ends his interesting narrative by arguing that the abolition of the slave trade will facilitate mutually beneficial trade between the British and Africa. As he puts it, it is trading upon safe grounds. A commercial intercourse with Africa opens an inexhaustible source of wealth to the manufacturing interests of Great Britain and to all which the slave trade is an objection. Coguano, meanwhile, outlines three steps toward achieving this goal. First, national days of mourning and fasting to seek forgiveness from God. Second, total abolition of slavery. Third, in his words, that a fleet of some ships of war should be immediately sent to the coast of Africa, and particularly where the slave trade is carried on, with faithful men to direct that none should be brought from the coast of Africa without their own consent and the approbation of their friends, and to intercept all merchant ships 
that were bringing them away until such a scrutiny was made whatever nation they belonged to. Equiano died in 1797, by which time Cugoano was probably also dead, though his activities are unknown after 1791, when he published a shorter, lightly revised version of Thoughts and Sentiments. So probably neither man lived to see the British outlaw the slave trade in 1807 and slavery in the colonies in 1834. Surely they would have been gratified that, following abolition, Britain adopted the third policy proposed by Cuguano. The same Royal Navy with whom Equiano had often sailed established the West Africa Squadron to patrol the West African coast. It is estimated that 1,600 slave ships were seized and 150,000 captured Africans were freed through this effort. Many of these re-captives, as they were called, chose to settle in Sierra Leone, greatly growing the colony's population, sons and daughters of Africa who could live free in the motherland. With Caguano and Equiano, we see that black authors of the time were working towards abolition using persuasion, political analysis, and emotional narrative as weapons against injustice. But right around the same time, slaves were using more literal weapons towards the same end. In 1791, the same year that Cogoano published the revised version of his book, an insurrection erupted on the French colony of Saint-Domingue in the Caribbean. Over the following years, the black population would fight for the birth of a new nation, and in so doing, change the terms of the global trade in and debate over slavery. What were the moral and political principles that drove the leaders of this uprising, like Toussaint Louverture? Our overture to you is that you join us to find out, as we turn to the philosophical underpinnings and implications of the Haitian Revolution, next time on the History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell him I had heart.